Radio Mano Papachango. Tangentialists out there. This is Andrew, Andrew Helbig, and I just um, I just took 500 micrograms of acid, and I wanted to send you this message, Chris, to tell you how much I love you. Just kidding. Didn't take any acid. Not this time. Just wanted to poke fun at my fellow acid heads and drug lovers on the podcast. Yes, indeed. This message was recorded sober. So yeah, I just wanted to send you this message, Chris, because I finally felt inspired enough to send one that I felt was worthy enough for your wise and aged ears. I've been listening to the podcast ever since 2012 or 2013, yeah, because it was my senior year of high school for sure. And I remember listening to and first falling in love with you ever since you were on the good old Duncan Trussell Family Hour podcast. And um, if my memory doesn't fail me, it was him who encouraged you to get into podcasting in the first place. So I was just wondering, I was just thinking, can we all, just all of us tangential listeners, and you too, Chris, can we all just have a moment of thankfulness and appreciation that Duncan suggested to Chris that he start his own podcast? If it wasn't for Duncan, maybe none of us would have good old Uncle Chris to whisper love vibes in our ears. No doubt about that. I will always be eternally grateful to Duncan for uh, convincing me that this was a good idea low these many years ago. I remember the conversation. We went out after doing his podcast and we were sitting in this weird, dark Tudor style bar restaurant near where he was living in some nondescript part of Los Angeles. And uh, and he was like, yeah, man, sounds like you meet lots of people. You, you know, lots of people. You should do a podcast. And I was like, podcast. It's the way I feel. The way I felt then is the way I feel now when people talk to me about EFTs. It's like, oh, really? Really? You want me to like learn a whole universe of things just because you're into this thing that six months from now no one will even remember existed? Sometimes you're wrong about that. You being me in this case. Uh, and I was certainly wrong about podcasting being a passing fad. Pods, iPods no longer exist, but podcasts still do, interestingly. Yeah, so anyway, I, uh, yeah, I will always be grateful to Duncan for that. Um, yeah, it's one of the regrets of my life that Duncan and I aren't close anymore. Uh, life just sort of does that. People change and move on, and um, yeah, uh, it's... Uh, it's a bummer. But when uh, Duncan was around in my life, he was uh, an extremely generous, kind, weird as fuck, but very open hearted presence. I wouldn't hear from Duncan for months sometimes. And then I'd get a call like, hey, man, I'm, I'm in the desert and I was just thinking about you and I just want to tell you I love you. I'm like, <laughs> all right. 
dude. Thank you. I mean, it's just that there were these like explosions of love and and intimacy and kindness. And then, uh, you know, you wouldn't hear from the guy for months and your emails go unanswered. And um, so that kind of uh, daily maintenance stuff never really seemed to be a strong suit, at least concerning me. But uh, when Duncan was around, he was very around and a beautiful presence in my life. Another beautiful presence in my life is the guy you're about to meet. His name's Robert DeVico. I just met him last week. Um, you know, this, I'm so happy. Now I'm on the road and the podcast is sort of returning to what I always loved about it, which is primarily conversations with people that I meet through daily life, not prearranged your assistants talking to my assistant trying to work out a schedule where we're both able to meet on a zoom call and our time zones intersect properly and hope we both have strong wi-fi that day and all these fucking mitigating issues that um, sometimes take the fun out of the conversation for me and you know i was sort of I think I've talked about this. I was sort of wondering if I wanted to keep doing the podcast um, because of that, because it it just drained the intimacy and the juice out of it. And it started to feel like sex with condoms. And at a certain age, it's like I've had enough sex. I don't need to have sex with condoms anymore. I I know that's probably really politically incorrect or something, but you just get to a point where you're like, Either this happens the way that really feels right to me or it doesn't need to happen. So that's kind of where I was when Substack reached out and said, hey, you know, we'd love to have you move everything over here and um, you can forget about all the advertising and all this stuff as long as you just talk about Substack occasionally. That's all we need. Um And that sort of reinvigorated it. And the timing was perfect because it was also the time when I'm traveling again. And uh, COVID, I don't know, it seems to be uh, receding, at least from consciousness, if not from lungs and bloodstreams. Um, Anyway, people are comfortable sitting in rooms together again. Uh, We keep the windows open, uh, but we're not wearing masks and we're in the same space, breathing the same air, hopefully not <laughs> with any horrible results. Um, but Robert is a guy, I just met him, as I said last week, he lives near Vejer de la Frontera in southern Spain. He's got a couple of horses and a bunch of dogs and two lovely daughters and um, beautiful friends, beautiful house. He takes his horse out and rides on the beach in the morning and the horse and he swim in the water together. And uh, he's got kind of an idyllic life. If you just sort of dip into it the way I did uh, when I first met him, he very graciously invited us to a a birthday party for a good friend of his who has just turned 80 recently, Um, not knowing us at all, just through Deborah, who is a friend of his. Uh, and we showed up and it was just so wonderful to meet him and all and his friend Sergio and everybody else. And um, and then we got together the next day or the following day uh, to record this conversation. So you'll hear two people don't know each other real well, getting to know each other, um, but guided by the hunch that we really like each other. And 
the longer the conversation went on, the more that hunch was confirmed. Um, there's a lot of talk primarily about ideas. Um, I brought it back to his personal story kind of um, forcefully because he and I could go on just talking about abstract ideas forever. But I knew that he had a very interesting life story and I wanted to get some of those details. So toward the end of the conversation, I sort of bring it back like, okay, wait a minute. How did you get from North London to playing backgammon for money on the streets of Manhattan to, you know, homeless to hitchhiking to becoming a well-known, what does he do? Art director, production designer, or something for movies and uh, ads and MTV music videos, like really well-known stuff, Santana and, um, yeah, people you definitely know. So I'll link to his uh, webpage where you can see that, his professional stuff. But he, he wasn't really interested in talking about that. He's much more interested in talking about ideas. And um, so there you go. Um, one thing I wanted to just mention briefly before we get into this is that some people have suggested, you know, I'm always looking for ways to introduce you to each other. Um, you know, with the regional meetups that we do when we're in the van and when we're traveling around. I think I mentioned we did one in, uh, we had a get together in Istanbul maybe a month or two ago. That was really great. Uh, people, I don't know, a dozen people came out or something. It was fantastic. Anyway, um, someone suggested setting up some kind of a Google map. Um, I have a Google map where when people write to me and say, hey, next time you're coming through this town in the van, you should stop by, you know, I'd love to meet you and have a beer, whatever. And I sort of keep a, a Google map where I insert those locations and uh, copy and paste from the email. So if I am going that way, I can reach out to people. Um, and somebody suggested we do something like that that's accessible to you as listeners, Um, I know Google Maps, you can share them. You can set up a specific map and you can share it. Um, But I don't really have the technical expertise to do something like this. I'm not sure how it would work. So I guess the idea is I need someone who has the time and the skill set to do this. Uh, And basically what I think you would be doing is you would be receiving emails from people who want to be included Um, So it's an opt-in kind of thing. Uh, If you want to be included, you would write to this person and say, hey, I live in Spokane. Uh, I listen to the podcast and I'd love to meet other listeners. And you can include your approximate location. I would not put your home address. Um, You can put your phone number if you want to. You can put an email address. You can do whatever you want as far as people contacting you and protecting your privacy. Um, this is only going to be for people who listen to the podcast, but of course, you know, they can send it on to other people. So I wouldn't include anything that's going to be compromising your privacy. Um, but you could definitely say, you know, I'm in Spokane, I'm in the Northwest, I'm in Tucson, whatever, love to hear from people. And then you would be on the map. So I need someone to set this up who knows how to do that. It's really easy. I can do that. I mean, I've done that thing where you just stick someone on the map. But the question for me would be, how do we share it widely? How do we make it accessible to people? Um, And there are going to be people who are like, yeah, I don't really have a place 
I'm mobile, but I'd love to have access to this because when I'm traveling, you know, I can uh, reach out to other people. So anyway, if you're interested in doing that, please get in touch with me. Um, you can do that through the Substack, or you can write to me directly at that Chris Ryan at gmail.com. And um, yeah, we'll figure out how to how to put this together for you folks. Okay. Uh, what else? That's about it. I'm going to do Aroma soon. I, I haven't been on here for a while, uh, largely because I've been traveling so much. It's been hard to find a, a place, a quiet place to sit down and record. But it's also been, I've had uh, really bad hay fever. I'm in this beautiful part of Spain that's just olive trees and lemon and oranges and jasmine. And just the air is so full of fragrance. But a lot of that fragrance is also pollen, I believe. And so I've been sneezing and coughing and just like my face is erupting. And uh, I've taken antihistamines and they seem to help a little bit, but I don't like to do that every day. And so anyway, I took one today so that I could record this without sneezing on you uh, because love vibes in your ear are very different from mucusy sneezes in your ear. Nobody wants that. I don't think. Do they? Is there a kink for that? Are there people who get off and having someone sneeze in their ear? I'm sure there are kinks for everything. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to uh, turn this conversation over to Robert DeVico. He's an awesome guy, as you'll hear. Uh, true mensch. Is that cultural appropriation if I call someone a mensch? <laughs> or a schmuck, for that matter? Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'll be recording Aroma soon. Uh, and just a quick update. Looks like not going to Ireland after all this summer. Going to go to Tanzania instead. So uh, for the next few days, we'll be on the road. Quick stop in Madrid where I'm going to record um, another conversation with a guy named Dario Pescador, who's a science journalist who uh, helped get Sex at Dawn published in Spain years ago. Uh, really good guy, really smart, very uh, interesting story of his life and his trajectory. Anyway, I'm going to go to Madrid, talk to him, then quick stop in Barcelona, see a couple of friends there, then up to Amsterdam, see a couple of friends there, then off to Tanzania for a month. So uh, you'll be hearing updates from Tanzania over the next few weeks. Then Tbilisi, Georgia for the month of July. Then Athens for the beginning of August. Then back to L.A. in later August. See my mom, Oliver, Cheryl, all my people in L.A. who I miss and love. And uh, get the van, Scarlett Johansson, and head north to Montana. So if you're on that route somewhere, uh, Say hi. Maybe we'll grab a beer somewhere, probably more toward the end of the route than the beginning. It's going to be pretty quick just going through here. But if you're going to be in Tanzania, Zanzibar or Tbilisi, Georgia or Athens uh, between now and mid-August, drop me a line. All right. Much love to everybody. I hope you're doing OK. Bye. Do you know what's the myth of um, you reminded me of I forget uh, uh I wrote about it in Sexaton. It's the, I think it's ancient Greek. He's walking through um, a field and he sees two snakes copulating. 
and he puts his staff between them and separates oh, them. See. Um, it begins with a T. And anyway, and then when he does that, he's transformed into a woman and he lives his life as a woman. And then he encounters two snakes again, does it again, is transformed back to a man. Tiresias. I think it's Tiresias. Really? I've never heard this. And then the story is that uh, one day Zeus and Hera are arguing over who enjoys sex more, males or females. And they say, well, it's as Tiresias, you know, because she's been in both sides. And uh, so they consult Tiresias and he says, oh, uh, women enjoy sex 10 times more than men. Most obviously. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you, when you realize the magnificence of, of what a female body is capable of yeah. when, with the right, you know, attention and trust and so forth. I mean, it doesn't, we don't come close. So to speak. So to speak. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> Excuse the pun. You know, um, yeah, for sure. And uh, I think it's really essential, uh, certainly within... It's part of the education too, and I think it's a huge part of the problem in, in the uh, Muslim world. You know, when I recently came back from Egypt with my kids and learned that there is no word in Arabic, for girlfriend. Mm. And so you've got these guys who are 28 years old, mm. you know, nearly 30, not married, still virgins, and they're frustrated. Yeah, you of know, course. Of course. And uh, the same goes for the other side. There's this imbalance that it's been very hard to wrap my head around, at least. There's know. a researcher named James Prescott mm-hmm. who did a paper a long time ago probably 30 years ago now, where he he was interested in this question of the relationship between violence and sexual frustration in cultures. Mm. And so he consulted the anthropological database that has, you know, cross-referenced information on every culture that's ever been studied. And he looked at several variables. One was the rate of violence within the society, the rate of violence between that society and neighboring societies, so inter- and intra-cultural violence, And then he looked at um, whether teenage sexuality is repressed or acknowledged and accepted. And um, the amount of mother-infant physical contact. So how long infants are breastfed and picked up and held and all that. Mm -hmm. And he found, I think there were 29 societies that had those data on those four variables. And he found that 28 of them the relationship was inverse. So the more mother-infant contact and the more acceptance of teenage sexuality, the lower the level of violence. Doesn't surprise me. And vice versa. It doesn't surprise me. But you know what, you know, how does that reflect on, let's say, America of today? Right. Because, you know, it doesn't hold up if you stop and think about it. I mean, you know, I I left America, which I always loved you know, make my dream come true there um, because of the violence. Right. And it became very, very real and very, very present and literally out of control. Now, we're talking about Los Angeles, of course, for me. Right. And you're saying it doesn't hold up because your presumption is that America is a sexually tolerant society? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to say really because Mm. on the coasts it is, but once you get inland, you know, it's another country. Um, so 
you know, I think there are other variables that really need to be examined in America herself because, you know, one of the big things that I think affects it is there is no longer, at least from my, a unifying culture. Right. You know, and I think there once was this sense of the common good, you know, mm. when America was this the land of dreams. and um, But now... Uh, capitalism is truly playing itself out and it's about the self you know everyone I'm going to get what's mine because I deserve it and when you get down to a certain echelon of society that hasn't had access to healthcare to education to you know ripe with fatherless sons uh, and so forth you know what is the way out yeah and, and especially if you don't have the tools to communicate adequately, you know, and, and actually that's one of my gripes with, with hip hop on some level, mm. you know, and, and I was in New York in the early eighties when hip hop exploded and it was I nothing against the music itself, but what has happened in the last, you know, what would it be now, 40, good Lord, 30, 40 years. Is I find the level of poetry to be almost non-existent. Mm. You know, I don't find great expression. I, I, I find anger. There's a lot of anger and there's a lot of I'm going to get mine and, you know. But poetry isn't, mm, mm, yeah, mm, yeah, you know. And, and that must be frustrating on some level to not have, a, you know, a real vessel of, of uh, complete communication and you're just focused in on, you know, these few small things, mm. which is the, uh, you know, let's call it the, the base human, you know, which is, you know, eating, fucking, sleeping and money and money. Crystal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- there are exceptions, of course, and Without they stand out so much. I, I don't know how much you listen to Outcast. You know, uh, no, I don't. They're from uh, it's two two guys from Atlanta, and um, is this a podcast you're talking about? No, it's a uh, uh, hip hop. Oh, oh, you're yeah. talking about the band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I've, yeah, I've listened. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'm not an expert on hip hop by any means, but there's a song of theirs that I reference all the time. It's super well known. Um, Shake it like a Polaroid picture, mm-hmm. you know, big video. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, I do. And it's, it's one of these songs that fascinates me because I, I'm really interested in, in art that isn't what it seems to be, where there seems like it's like a hidden message. It's or the, one of those paintings where it's a painting over a painting, you know? Well, you know, all of my paintings, which were uh, inspired by alchemy, always, because I can't express what I'm trying to say through words, hmm. which is one have a painting underneath it. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Ah. There's a full painting underneath that, uh, that I, which is the important painting, and then I paint over it. Oh, okay. And I well. may even be able to show you. Uh, you may get to see part of it. This one's 30. This one's 30 something years old. But All right, I'm going to post a, a oh, photograph of this beautiful painting. Um, oh, if oh, you, you look in the, the back, back, right? Let me get some light under it. Uh-huh. You kind of get, you can kind of see. Right. And much of my paintings um, have alchemical text underneath them. Right. You know, so 
there is a there is a sculpture a sculptural painting which which as you you can sort of see there's uh you know chemical emblemata all through it and then i paint over that and all you get is the is you, all you get is the sculpture mm. which is under the thing mm. Right. Yeah. There's a sense of the, a a sense relief, of, of relief and yeah. texture. And when this was new, I mean, you know, it's old now. You really saw it because it was shiny. It was, right. And if the light comes in from the side, yeah, it probably. It really, pulls I mean, if I were to wash it, and it could use a good wash. Yeah. But uh, this this has everything to do with what we're discussing right now. Yeah. You know, the the the, the power of the sacred feminine, and. Uh, yeah. I think she's really important. Kind of remind. There's a. Uh, an album cover for one of Santana's early records that has a I, f- I feel like it has a female yeah you know Jesus Abraxas I think it it's is it's yeah. the cover of Abraxas right yeah. right which is I, way like 72 or yeah, something I, I like Carlos very much I, I, I met him and became friends with him and uh, so when you did the video I did a bunch of videos and yeah. you know it's way too many I started off in MTV and then right hundreds it must be at this point but I worked with Carlos Santana a couple of times Carlos and Steven Tyler which was very interesting because these two human beings could not be further apart both brilliantly talented in their own way both charismatic and so forth but one was sort of like an arrested adolescent and the other was frankly a bodhisattva you know he was the most (laughs) generous and and, mm. and gorgeous uh, man and, mm. and so and one of the things about him other than his music which affected certainly our generation so mm. much and me in North London you know he was sort of like an escape um, uh, but you know he would it didn't matter who you are he would give you complete attention mm be a PA on the set or me I was a designer I mean not important really and complete total absolute I am here for you as a human mm. being right now in this now yeah it's a beautiful thing it was a marvellous thing and and Stephen on the other hand uh, who I like very much too you know I spent so much of my life on Laurel Canyon and mm. showed up right there but like when we were shooting him there had to be a full size mirror no matter where he looked <laughs> Everywhere he looked, we had to have a full, you know. Had so, to see himself. Uh, yeah, wow. and, 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 and I found this to be very interesting, you know, yeah. to have these two, I think diametrically opposed is too strong, but these two characters who are mm. different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. It was, uh, and do you think that fame pushed each of them further in the direction that they would have gone Anyway, does fa- I guess the question is, in your experience, you've hung out with a lot of very famous people. Mm-hmm. Do you think that fame makes you more who you already were, or is it a distorting presence? I think at the end of the day, it becomes pure distortion. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day. There are different stages in fame. Right. You know, there's like the early fame where you're getting your dream to come true, and then there's this sort of middle fame where you like it because you're getting all your stuff, but all of a sudden you're wondering what, and then, you know, who's what and who's who in yeah. your life. And then, trust. then what happens is when you really, well, what I've observed, when you really are there, you only surround yourself by people of your own 
level mm. and, and you know you're surrounded by advisors and sycophants and so forth and I think one I think people get really lost yeah you know and we've seen that I mean we we, we know that we, we see the distortion actually yeah. through careers and then some people come out of it you know I think one of the interesting things that happened in our lifetime at least was as we watched like Dustin Hoffman Jack Nicholson Al Pacino run through their careers which are in parallel with our lives and then there was this moment if you recall maybe 10 15 years ago where they all became caricatures of themselves mm. the fiction the mm. tonality whatever it was a caricature of who they thought they were and thing and then now i think uh or at least the latest one they broke through that Mm. And they became themselves. Mm. So there was this full journey where when you look at the latest films of of these guys, they really returned to being these great actors. And look at The Irishman, for example. Mm. You know, it wasn't a caricature of mm. himself. Right. It was a real performance of... Right. So know. it's almost like he had to outgrow... The, the expectations of the audience move beyond. I remember it's a story. courage. I mean, it really is courage. Oh, yeah, to do that. I mean, is I mean, that's they say Robert De Niro has no real personality. That he he just absorbs so much of the character because in person he's totally boring and blank. Is that what's said? That's what I've heard from many people. And uh, on the other hand, an anecdote about Jack Nicholson that I always remember is when he first got to Hollywood, he was a screenwriter. He wasn't even trying to make it as an actor. Right. And he had a roommate. Uh, they're sharing a dirtbag apartment in Hollywood somewhere. And the roommate said, dude, like, you're not making any money. You're not selling anything. At least come to this casting. Maybe you'll get a minor part or whatever. Make some money. And the producers, after he read for the part, the producers said to him, Mr. Nicholson, we don't need you for this, but if we ever do need you, we'll need you very badly. Oh, is that so? Isn't that interesting? Yes, and what a lovely story. Yeah, and so I, the, what I take from that is that Jack was already Jack, Jack. and he's not going to be anyone else. Right. He's Jack. Maybe he could be the Joker. Right. Maybe he can be Easy Rider guy, but he's Jack. He's Jack, yeah. He's not Daniel A. Lewis. No. Um, yeah, and so like there are those kind of actors, and then there's Daniel Day Lewis, who's gay in one film and a womanizer in the next my one. My left foot. I of mean, my left foot. I mean, they're just the unbearable lightness. Of, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. It's one of my favorite books, Unbearable Lightness of Me. Yeah, I've read it five times at least. Just such an interesting book about the way men and women see and experience life differently, and mm -hmm. I think. It's one of the first novels I read that really got into that and and the whole difference between f the, the weight of freedom and the intangibility of, of oppression. And I mean, just, oh, it's well, such well, a beautiful book. The, the, freedom, you know, you mentioned without limits, you know, and, and the weight of freedom is a really interesting concept because, you know, if you find yourself without some form of moral direction. Right. And, and I'm talking about one's own, not mm. that of imposed upon you on society. And you choose to live that, you know, it's a perilous path. Well, isn't that what fame does? It, well, exactly. That's what fame, yeah. it's what fame does. Because you, you become, uh, on some level, reality 
well, one might say, you know, reality ruined my life mm. with what's going on. <laughs> and, you know, how reality ruined my life, you know, <laughs> uh, because reality becomes uh, so disjointed mm. from real life on some level when you, when, you know, you walk into a restaurant and you're, everybody's looking at you, but you don't know anybody. I mean, you know, um, Ben Harper wrote that wonderful song, When She Believes. Mm. If you know it, it's a spectacular song. And he says, you know, I've, I, I've heard the singing of angels. I've been adored by strangers. And, you know, nothing comes close to it when she believes in me. Mm. You know, so that being adored by strangers, I think is, you know, very frightening place on some level because after a while, you're not sure what to believe anymore. Right. And I think on some level, you know, to make a big jump, but look at Putin right now. He's surrounded by sycophants and yes men and thought that this was going to be you know, some walk in the park and all mm. of a sudden he's exposed, you know, what terrible condition Russia was actually in. Yeah. But that's the result of sycophants and yes men. Yeah. And I think that happens on an intrapersonal level mm. too, uh, you know, within the realm of, I mean, imagine being, you know, so famous and so what, you look, Johnny Depp. Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. Well, Michael, is a, that's a very interesting story. Because the other thing about fame is it's also what age you are when you get famous. And someone said, you stay the age you are. You stay at that psychological level of development for the rest of your life. Yeah, it may be the case. I mean, I found it very interesting watching, you know, what, what Johnny's going, what Johnny Depp's going through right now, you know, which is just a tragedy all the way around. Yeah. Both of them. I mean, you know, why hang your laundry out on that? Yeah. But I think you, you may be right. You know, there is this, uh, yeah. And you know him personally, Johnny? No, I don't. Yeah. I don't at all. Um, but I'd like to. He's one of the people I'd like to know. Yeah, that's an interesting subcategory of famous people. Of like famous people I would actually, I think I would actually enjoy sitting down and just hanging out with. Mm -hmm. And there aren't a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I had an experience that people listen to this have heard me talk about it before, but I had an experience where I, I found myself sitting next to Peter Gabriel for about 15 minutes. Oh, Nothing, We were waiting for a thing to start and it was just him and me sitting there and we started talking and I had this idea that I was going to do him the favor of treating him like a normal person. Oh, exactly. no. I am not a normal person. <laughs> I'm a special person. Well, and, that's he, what and he is, and I admire him immensely. So it wouldn't have been blowing smoke up his ass. I really admire him. Sure. But I just chatted with him like, so I hear you got married and you got a place outside. And I could see he got increasingly uncomfortable because I was full of shit. I wasn't being authentic. I was faking authenticity. Well, you know, that's an interesting realization to come to yourself. Well, it's because I talked about it on the podcast and some because I was perplexed by my own behavior and by his discomfort. And someone wrote to me and they're like, yeah, Chris, because you you were pretending to be real, but you weren't being real. Real would have been 
dude, you've changed my life. You're, you've really enriched my life. Well, that was, you know... And then act like a normal person. Well, well that's what happened with me and Carlos. And, you know, after all these years of working with, you know, famous actors and, you know, musicians and so forth, I went, and I never, ever, I mean, I have very few pictures of me with these because I would never do that. That was just, you know, it's taboo on a set. You, mm. don't, you know, we're right. here to work and right. we don't do any of that and I'm not going to ask you for a picture with you or your autograph or whatever. But with Carlos, I made an exception because, you know, I came up very hard in North London and for whatever reason, I was different. Just my last name, all of it, single parents, so forth. And Carlos is especially like Moonflower and Abraxas, mm. was this sanctuary for me. Mm. I mean, I must have played that disc until it went bald, mm. you know. Yeah. And when I finally got to work with him and I was there, I, I went up to him and I started off by apologizing. I said, look, I, honestly, I really, truly never, but I have to thank you <laughs> yeah. because your music saved my life. And it really did. It, and and ever since then, you know, music has always been a sanctuary, especially live music. I think I think live music is a food group, hmm. and everybody should participate <laughs> in it great. one way or another. And it's not the same as playing off of Spotify or putting hmm. in a DVD because when you when you're with live music, you have human beings through their fingers, through their breath, through whatever it might be, vibrating real space. Right. And that vibration of real space affects emotionally whoever may be listening or participating in it or singing or inspired, you know. Uh, much like a dancer will inspire a musician to play because mm -hmm. a dancer is also vibrating real space. Mm -hmm. and, and you feel that. Where... Um, Played back music just does not have that, they call it in Spanish, you know, just, it doesn't have that magic. And, and I think live music, uh, like the removal of music from the educational system and art from the educational mm. system was just, was just sort of cultural suicide. I mean, when, when Reagan and those guys did that, I mean, I remember it very well. There were, there were demonstrations in the street in New York, you mm. know, and here we are, you know, whatever it might be, 30, 40 years later, and we see the effect of that. Yeah. You have generations who have no medium to express themselves, you know, in, in, in high art. Yeah. And the, the loss of, the loss of like music in regular schools. Well, what does that mean? That means only those people who are fortunate or privileged enough to have a private education where they have a music program, well, they're the only ones who are going to come and be, you know, part of the symphony or part of the whatever. And everybody else has to sort of, you know, hack their way through the jungle to... to With, that, Without a machete. Without a machete. Yeah. Exactly. And so when, like today you yeah. said, that looks like... Uh, uh, Rembrandt. Rembrandt. Well, that was an intrinsic talent in the artist. And do you know how many children have that intrinsic talent hmm. but are not given a chance to express it? Yeah. And, and, and therein lies huge frustration. You know, if yeah. you're caught in sort of some sort of mundane, repetitious life and you don't have this, this, this human desire to create. Well, I think, you, but they do, everyone has it. 
Yeah, well, no, 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 you don't have the ability to no, actually respond no to that human desire yeah. to create. And, yeah. and I think that's part mm -hmm. of why we're here. You know, I don't believe that, you know, we live, we, we, we born, we live, we die and it's over. I don't believe death is the opposite of life. I think death is the opposite of birth and life has no opposite. Mm. Uh, I firmly believe that mm. multidimensional people, all of us, that there isn't one human being on planet Earth who is not here for a specific wonderful reason. Uh, I believe that in the realm of, should we call it reality, <laughs> uh, where here we are sandwiched between two infinities, right? The infinity of the past and the infinity of the future. And here we are in the material world caught in this conjunction of of conflict on some level certainly inside and we have a job to do here and i think that when we return to our natural state of being uh which is outside of that sandwich if you will mm. you know, so can, before birth and after death is the natural state well i would say so because it's not finite mm. it's infinite mm -hmm. and i firmly believe that we're multi-dimensional i mean you know when you sleep and dream where are you Yes, you're in your bed, but you're also riding that horse or being chased by the dragon or whatever. I mean, another bed with Selma Hayek is where I am. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky Selma. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so I really believe that when we return to our natural state of being, because certainly from an alchemical perspective, we are here to perform the great work. And the Opus Magnum, the great work, I believe, is the union of spirit and matter. So when we return to our natural state of being, we have a proverbial armband on us that, oh my God, they've been there. They've actually stepped into the most difficult thing that exists in the realm of existence, which is to materialize spirit. Is that love? Love is the only miracle. Yes, love has something to do with it. And you might say, is that love of the creator of himself, herself? Because each of us is a manifestation of the infinite possibilities mm. of creation. And yes, I think love is, I mean, is there anything like it when you actually experience it? Well, because it is that expression or experience of the infinite right it's timeless i remember realizing i had a girlfriend you know i was like in high school or something and she said i'll, I'll always love you and i remember at the time thinking i get what you're saying but realistically that's not <laughs> well it depends what that means i mean you know at this point in my life you know the the women that i have loved and some ended well some ended badly but all of them I still love. They haven't ended. That's the Well, thing. I still love them in a different way. I mean, you know, yeah. some, it was a bad, you know, some ended pretty badly, you mm -hmm. know, and, and, but I can separate myself from those things that we did to each other or that happened to that feeling. Yeah. That is still residual in me. Well, the essence of the person is different from the behavior of the person. Well, there you go. Yeah. And, and we're all here to learn, you yeah. know, and I think that we all have agreement to, 
you know, invite into our lives the person who's going to be able to give us the best lesson we need right mm. now. And, and, and we get to reciprocate that. Right, right. So back to this sort of, which fascinates me, you know, what is our purpose here? Yeah. Um, first of all, I believe our purpose is an individual one. And there is safety for in the realm of the unknown within religion for a lot of people. Personally, I don't, you know, having studied it so deeply, I don't, I, I believe in the sacred and I believe in uh, that we are a manifest of divinity on some level, if you will, but we are not separate from divinity. Right. You know, we, as, as um, Khalil Gibran said in The Prophet, don't say that God is in my heart, but rather I reside in the heart of God. Mm. And he's right. Because, you know, each one of us is an exploration of the divine, exploring the infinite amount of possibilities that exist within the realm of the material. Wait, say that again. Each of us is a representation of... I think each of us, every human being on planet Earth, on, is a representation of an aspect of the divine. Ah, okay. Okay. And, and, and yeah. each one of us is a unique representation. Right. But it doesn't make me separate from you. Right. I may be an individual, but we are of, as, as Rudyard Kipling, the opening of uh, uh, a Jungle Book, we are of one breath. Right. The forest whispers to Mowgli. Yeah. yeah, the way I've come to envision individual lives is raindrops. Yes. So you and I are two separate raindrops. Yes. But eventually we land, we, we're in the ocean. And we come from the ocean. And we come from the We're made of the same substance. We're two different mm -hmm. particles of that substance, but it's all intermingling. And so at the end of the day, what is the point? And having, having sort of journeyed through a bunch of different traditions and so forth. I find that the uh, the Buddhist way, which is not a religion, is certainly the early stuff, which is so sort of hand in hand with alchemy and hermetic philosophy and so forth, because this, this mystery school teachings, which I believe came from a pre-Diluvian culture, uh, is extant all over planet Earth. Mm. It's just got a different filter on, you know, whether that filter is you know, Hindu or Taoist or Zen or whatever. But the thing about the Buddha is, is the Buddha is not to be worshipped. The Buddha is a reminder of your potential. Right. And within the, the sort of classical Western alchemy, there's this term... Uh, the unborn son. And the unborn son is the son with no name. And it can't have a name until it exists. And the moment that it exists, everything that has gone before is redundant. Because here is the point. And this is the opus magnum. And I spent a lot of time studying and meditating on that. And I believe that our job, which is a job of lifetimes upon lifetimes, is the unification of spirit and matter. Right now, there are these separate entities. And I think that, you know, here we are in the world created, this stuff. 
and having a relationship with the world creating, which is spirit, and with a bridge that holds all of this together. Because mm-hmm. without our perception, nothing can exist. Mm-hmm. Your particular perception allows existence to take place. Right. If and this is reflected in quantum mechanics. Absolutely. And, you know, understanding of matter as energy and energy as matter. Finally. Yeah. Finally, we're catching up with mm-hmm. what the ancients understood. And they may have had a cryptic or, by modern standards, clumsy way of defining and expressing that. I wouldn't hmm. call it clumsy because it involved education. You had to be well studied in all of the arts before you were ever exposed <laughs> to right. these concepts and yeah. thoughts. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so we have a very important job to do. And, you know, I might, and really everybody, I mean, you mentioned that you have spoken and worked with Hancock and all of those guys. And I think that. Oh, great. I think they all have an important role. But all of these things, especially when we're dealing with spirit uh, uh, or mysteries, boils down to opinion at the end of the day. And that opinion may be governed by a faith that's in your belly that lets you know it's truth, you know, for you, truth. Mm. For you, right. that's what's important. Mm. Um, uh, and I think we all volunteered. Mm. I think we actually volunteered to come and do this very difficult task. And we cut off our own wings and we gouged out our own eyes and we stepped off the edge into the abyss to tumble for lifetimes on lifetimes to actually find the light again. So we come from the light, we placed ourselves in darkness in order to find the light. And that is the uh, evolutionary progression, I think, to where we're all going. And we volunteered for this, you said. We volunteered. For That's this. interesting. We were not condemned to this. Right. And this is why we, we when we return to our natural state of being, uh, uh, in many ways, we're honoured. One of the things I don't care for regarding the uh, New Age movement and, you know, coming from LA, you know exactly what I'm talking about and all this sort of, all these people, the business of enlightenment. Mm, yeah. All right. What I don't care for is this, that it's all love and light and happy and whatever, you know, let's all dance around the Kundalini fire and do our thing. But what they don't tell people and this has become very apparent to me in my life of study, that by coming here, we put our very souls in jeopardy. Mm. And not by how you might think. I don't think we put our souls in jeopardy because we become Hitler or we become a some monster who does horrible things. I think our souls become in jeopardy when we become seduced by matter. Mm, because matter is finite and our journey is infinite however the creation is good Mm. so if you so desire matter you are so seduced by matter and we know people I'm quite sure who are people very close to me Mm. you know who have lost all humanity because of their love of stuff and money and things and so forth well the the the, let's call it new age community 
in its broad spectrum does not warn anybody that that material seduction, should you go for it, is a relinquishment of your infinite nature. Mm. And herein lies the herein lies why this is so difficult, because we come down here ignorant, blind. Right? There may be, we may have bodhisattvas among us who give us messages, and we, through poetry, art, whatever, may come up with brilliant concepts, which I don't believe are ours. I think we channel download, them. I think we download them. Right. When we're really in tune with what we love, yeah. you know, you say love, yeah. when we're in tune with what we love, then the creation responds yeah. and gives us what we need, and it's brilliant. But when we become so seduced by, I have to have Valentino's chair that's covered in horse and or and yeah. you know extrapolate that out into a lifetime every time we do that we are relinquishing our infinite nature and there comes a moment where we become dust right and therein lies the, right. the, the danger and that fits perfectly into your sort of cosmology of our job here being the unification to serve as a bridge between those things so if you sacrifice yourself to one side or the other or the other and you know the other side too. Mm, by, pure by, by, you're like you know, you have all these people which I admire and honor. You know who are who meditate and they sit and they're trying so hard to get to spirit, right? Well, my take is no, man. We're here to live. You know, we're here to actually experience this wonder, these plants, these flowers. You know, the interrelationship mm. with another person, the yeah. sex, the physicality. There's nothing bad or dirty about right. that um, at all. In fact, the opposite. You know, if you beautifully demonstrated by Tom Robbins in um, uh, my favorite book, the uh, even cowgirls. No, not cowgirls. Uh, uh, the other one. Um, wood. Uh, wood. Still no, life with woodpecker. You know, no. <laughs> Uh, it's like Jeopardy. Scarlet, uh, no, uh, even cow. No, even cow. Still, still no, life of the no, no, it's the one. It's the one with Pan and uh, uh, and where where he meets the woman and they live for hundreds of years and have sex and then get separated and he. he uh, uh, it's called up. Uh, it's been forty years since I read Tom Brown. Hold on, this one. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm sorry. All right, I'm you ruin, find your lighter. I'm ruining, I'll, I'll I'm ruining your recording. That's now, all right. I'll get back to this book. I'll edit it out or something. Robbins, uh, American novelist. All right, let's see here. It starts off with that great passage about beets. Remember, the beet is the most passionate of fruits. Tibetan peach pie. No. It's called uh, writing career. No. Here we go. Let's see what it is. Yeah. It's the whole Wikipedia thing. Oh, so right. J- Jitterbug Perfect. Jitterbug Perfect. Uh, okay. Never read that one. You know what? Then pick it up and read it. I'll give you my copy. It's tatty. It's been read by my whole family <laughs> twice. And I swear to God, you will not regret it. Because yeah. he really, He's a really good writer. He addresses this in the most funny way, but he addresses exactly this. Mm. You know. Who are we? What are we here for? And and the whole book uh, is about the highest expression with his tongue in cheek, of course, because he's so brilliantly, you know, satirical yeah. and so on. Yeah. But the whole book is about uh, enlightenment through sex, through a sexual partner. Oh, I should read that. It's through a sexual yeah. partner who he 
saves from uh, uh, a pyre who makes her promise when mm. he's traveling. He's a king. I don't know if I can get into the story with you now, but you know, it's a splendid story mm. and you'll love it. And it all starts out with the story of a beat and one gray hair. Mm. And that he takes you on Goes from there. an unimaginable journey, which I love. Well, I've always, that's been an issue for me. You mentioned Buddhism a few times and I've studied Buddhism a bit and, you know, I was stymied. I, I respect the philosophy a lot. As you say, it's not a religion. It's sort of an approach to life or a discipline. It's a manual. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, and the one thing that I always found a little off-putting was the whole thing about renunciation of desire. Because I've always found desire to be an ally. Well, I like desire. Well, it makes me feel alive. That's you know? not the earliest Buddhist story. Is that that's like... And, and you know, superstition, superstitious Buddhism came about. But when you when you come into uh-huh. you the know the, the circle of bliss, the earliest stuff is is ta- it's all tantric, right? You know, yeah. and there there are the the Kashmiri tantric schools, and you know, it's all to do with yeah this and, yeah and That's then and then what happened? What happened is it got twisted, caught you yeah. know within. And human control. Well, like India. I mean, you go to India now, you see these incredible sculptures of, of all sorts of sexual bliss happening, but the culture itself is very repressive and misogynistic, and it's turned away from, you know, the Kama Sutra. And, in, some, and, in most. But, but isn't this a global problem right now? Yeah. Because I, well, think, I think... Isn't that why we're in Spain? That's why I'm in Spain. That's why I'm in Spain. Because it's a culture that embraces pleasure. It, em- it embraces quality of life. Yeah. Absolutely. Whether it's food or sunshine or showing up late for work. Or <laughs> and especially down here. You yeah. know, the Gaditanos, what I love about them is that they are this, you know, they have Phoenician blood and Moorish blood and Jewish mm-hmm. blood. And, you know, I mean, look at the church outside our house. Right. Right. I mean, that was a temple to Isis. It was a temple to Hercules. It's been a mosque, a synagogue. And then the Catholics came and threw their thing on top of it. And if you look at the tower, there's a big star of David. Yeah, I saw that. You know, so it's crazy. And I think yeah. that's what humanity is. We should be celebrating our differences. Mm. We should be right. We should be, you know, honoring the fact that your culture and my culture are, are, are so different. Be it within food, be it within dress, be it within. And 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 protecting and and loving that. We shouldn't be. And certainly the concept of, like, let's kill each other because that, my imaginary friend is more real than your imaginary friend. I mean, it's yeah. foolish. Yeah, cultural appropriation confuses me. I, I get the part of respecting other cultures, of course, but the idea that somehow certain foods or, or rituals are owned by particular cultures, I, I find absurd. It's absurd. Every culture is made of other cultures. It's... We live on planet Earth. It's like trying to clean dirt. It's like dirt is it's dirt. dirt. <laughs> you yeah. can't clean dirt. It's made of things that we consider dirty. That's why it's called dirt. And, and, and you know, when you sink your hands in the dirt, what a cathartic oh, experience yeah. that yeah. truly is, you know. Yeah. And we can talk, you know, factual physical dirt and planting plants, but also within the realm of our own being, mm. you know, when we actually, actually face our demons and step up to that. Wipe your ass with your hand occasionally. That's a great thing that happens in India. I haven't used toilet paper in 
toilet. It's such I mean, a scam. It's, it's disgusting. It's ridiculous. I have a shower next to the toilet. I right. shower myself. Yeah. I'm done. And ooh, yeah. Personal. But that, this whole concept of, <laughs> of like smearing my waste all over my head. And cutting down trees to do it. And cutting I mean, down what the trees fuck is to that? do it. Yeah. I, I once was invited to teach a workshop at uh, Esalen. Oh, Big right. Sur. I think so. Yeah. You spend time there. And I'm, I mean, I love Esalen and uh, and I jumped at the chance to spend three days there free and you know, they paid me something. I don't know. Um, but mainly it was so my wife could hang out in the hot springs. And, nice. Um, but I quickly ran out of things to talk about because I don't do workshops. Like I'll give a presentation, right. talk about my book or this or that or whatever. But you know, 10 hours? I don't know what the fuck to do for 10 hours. Don't you, I found this in, in um, what, again, here we return to the business of enlightenment. And right. I think this is what drove Alan Watts nuts. Mm. He hated it. Yeah. He hated the fact that this was all turning into a business now. And, and, and he would start his, uh, many of his talks saying, I'm not selling you anything. Mm. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I just want to expose you to what I know. And he's, and, and he, you know, he's correct with that. But I find, and I found in LA, uh, especially, which is sort of like this hub of gurus and yoga community and whatever, is that those people who were giving these workshops to ostensibly help people find, they were more messed up than the people that they were helping. The moment you got them alone and the moment yeah. you actually started talking to them, many, yeah. I mean, you know, there were others who were very real and, you know, they, they have a calling and they really help people. That's what I liked about Vedanta there. But Is there a way around that? I think it's one of the perils. I think it's one of the perils of fame, you know? I mean, how do you, when you become this uh, guru and all of a sudden you have devotees I find that you know I mean it's a cultural thing I suppose but I find that to be absurd yeah only one thing merits devotion as far as I'm concerned and that's the creation herself right everything else is a product of that you know so you know if you are still manifesting as a human it means you have work to do Mm -hmm. and I believe that when you achieve the opus magnum when you achieve the great work then what you're doing is becoming the germ seed of a universe much like our own. And I think every human heart is the germ seed of that because we are a singularity. We, we have an event horizon that takes place. And one of the things that, you know, I'm amazed isn't spoken of more is that here we have a heart with four chambers in it, right? Yes. Those four chambers are all touching, which by definition creates a fifth. It might be very small, but it creates a fifth chamber in the middle. And I think that point of singularity, those 21 grams, you remember the movie 21 grams when... As a soul and... Well, he, every human, is this, there's this thing that every human, when you die, at the moment of death, you lose 21 grams. Yeah. You know, and I think that we are a singularity, which means we have a specific gravity, mm. which would give us that internal weight. And once that singularity stops firing, well, we're nothing but dust. 
you know, I'm, you're not your body, I'm not my body. Yes, it's, I get to drive the car, but you, my hand is an axe or a hammer or it's a tool yeah. to go and live the life of a human. And, and I think that the great conflict that we're in right now, this conflict of spirit and matter, the conflicts that we see around the world about power and people uh, wanting to control so many people, is because we do live in this duality. Duality is a part of it, you know, and I, I loathe to call it good and bad I, because polarity is one of the universal rules of existence. But here we are in this battleground and we are the battleground and we are the prize. And we're the, the fighters on each side. Without a doubt. So yeah. I think what's happened mm. now is that um, people are so bombarded. Like I haven't owned a television. I, I don't have a television in any of my homes and I haven't had one in my home for decades. And I think because I, you know, sold sugar water to kids you know, for years making commercials and so forth. And I realized that people are bombarded by nonsensical stuff and they get upset about things that truly don't matter and you you miss the joy right in front of you and i'm guilty of that you're guilty we're all guilty of that for sure and and we're here to learn that Hmm. you know this is school and i don't think learning uh within the realm of should we call it the i am that is i am entity that is actually listening to the thoughts that I'm having uh, we get separated we are being intentionally separated by that yeah and you know with fear uh, and so we're being bombarded by the material yeah ever more so Ever more so. It that's almost, because we're getting closer. You think that's what it is? Without a doubt. So what's happening? It's a, a friend of mine described it as circling the drain. We keep going faster and faster and faster as we get closer. I think there's a nicer metaphor than that. But yes, I think there's, that's a, that's a, that, you know, or one could say the tornado um, and go up. I think is it is it the artificial intelligence is it is that the singularity where biology and technology finally join? I don't think that biology and technology can ever really join without soul. We can get machines to do the work for us. We can get machines to monitor us. We can get machines to measure and measurement is everything. You know, it's part of great you know, measurement. There's even an angel of measurement, Michael. Mm. Um, but I, I don't think that's the issue. I, I think that we are coming to a magnificent crux in the creation. And as we get closer to that crux, the uh, distractions, shall we say, become greater. Hmm. So the closer we come to achievement, the more we're going to be bombarded by distraction, 
temptation, whatever it might be, to try and fill these voids that are becoming, you know, because somewhere inside of me there's this desire to to know there must be more than this. Mm. It's not just this. You know? You're reminding me of, um, I'm sure we've all experienced this, when you're sleeping and something happens like maybe you smell smoke and in your dream, Without doubt. you create a narrative to explain it. An instant narrative, right. which is what's so amazing. Right. It's like, yeah. So maybe as you describe this approaching how the distractions increase it, it reminds me of this feeling of like you're you don't know it, but you're getting closer to waking up because the distractions become so overwhelming at some point that you say, wait a minute, I'm in the wrong dimension. I, I agree with you. This is just a dream that becomes overpowering to the point where, wait a minute, I have to wake up. I smell smoke. Correct. I agree with you. Huh. And I, I think dreaming is a wonderful thing to talk about because it's the physical demonstration that we are multidimensional. Right. That we are not just a sack of meat. Yeah. You know. Um, and a daily reminder of it, the way that the fact that it's needed. So wh- where do other animals, because I know animals are very important to you. You've got so a beautiful relationship with I've animals. I've seen all my animals dreaming. Yeah. What I would consider to be dreaming. And are they part of this? Did they volunteer? Are they well, on a that's a very journey? interesting question. And it brings us on to a, 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 a broader conversation on some level. I think that everything that is manifest here is a reflection of uh, potential. And, you know, Darwin was not the guy to discover evolution. Evolution was being talked about uh, by Thoth 2,000 years ago. Hmm. And what he basically said and, and is that, you know, let's go back to this world created and world creating. Well, in the world created, you know, we have the menorah. You know, the menorah, which is the, the candles, candles and whatever, yeah. seven of them. So the first line, according to this magnificent book called Talking with Angels, that changed my life back in New York when I was on the street dealing having a really rough time playing backgammon for a living and someone gave me this book I thought oh new age bullshit okay we put a pin on that we got to get back to that story but finish the the Torah and well, let's finish, talk about I New York it's from there yeah. this piece of information comes from there I right. don't want to lay claim to it I sure. would like to tell you where it came from Gita Malaks, uh wrote the book and it's this that the first line is minerals and minerals represent truth they are absolute truth. The second line is plant life, and they represent generosity of love. They only give, they demand nothing, they only give. They give us oxygen, they give us fruit, they give us wood, they give us. The third are animals, and animals are an expression of harmony of motion. So each animal is perfectly designed to move through this material world in its own specific way, Mm. right? Then there's the bridge between the world created, which is that, and the world creating. We are the bridge. So where you won't find necessarily the human in any animals, I think there are exceptions to that with domestic animals. I think when domestic animals have been with families or have been Mm. loved by a human or whatever, that shifts them on some level. But uh, where you won't find the human in any animal, you will find every mineral, every plant, and 
every animal mm. and some aspect within the manifestation of the human experience. Right. Because we have evolved to this point to become ready materially where, where matter and spirit can meet. And that's our job. And so the next three lines are very interesting. The next line is purportedly the angels and the difference between us and the angels, if you will, is as grand as the difference between us and let's say the dog. Mm. Then there are the seraphim, um, which again, the difference between the angels and them is as broad as it's all evolutionary. And then there is the, what the hermeticists call the all, and that's the seventh one, which enjoins everything into one thing. Mm. So uh, I think there's a lot to be learned from animals. And, and, and what I like about animals, possibly the most, is a horse knows he's a horse. And he's going to be a horse. No matter what you do, he's a horse. He's going to have his fight, flight, you know, fight or flight reaction. He's going to eat the food he's supposed to eat and he's going to be a horse and do horse things same with a dog or a cat or a snake or a spider the problem with humans and this is that jumping off the abyss and plucking out our eyes and cutting off our wings is that we don't know who we are mm. and we're here struggling to try and understand our certainly anyone who gives it some thought our purpose here and you know and I think that within the Hindu realm and the Buddhist realm, they say that we have all been each other's mothers throughout the eons of being. Uh, and the human experience is a magnificent and complex one. I don't understand the cruelty. That's the thing that is you know, most challenging to me, that I see so much cruelty and, and that is becoming more and more apparent. That became more apparent to me in America. Yeah. And, and, and I found it reflected in language too, mm -hmm. you know, where, and it's amazing where you stop and you take a look at, let's say Cary Grant, let's pull that name out of the hat. And you take a look at this, this character, this archetype, who is Cary Grant, the movie star. Always impeccable, beautifully spoken, carefully spoken whatever where now today i can't have a conversation with an american on the whole in gen i'm generalizing of course where they don't say fuck nine times in a sentence mm. do you know what i mean what well, is fucking thing is a fucking fucking fuck you know and and not that i have any problem with that i don't but it's sort of taken away the glory of our potential you know, and the beauty of words and the beauty of poetry and, and, and how that can touch you and, and what that means. And I always felt that, and, and believe me, I got the mouth of a sailor. I, I'm not judging anybody. Uh, um, but I've always felt that, you know, arbitrary bad language is just a reflection of a lack of control over the language and you don't have the actual word you need to express that very specific sentiment mm. that you're talking about. And, and this is the great shame uh, in the demise of education, of modern education. It's not just America, it's everywhere. Yeah, I wonder if it has something to do with the anti-pleasure ethos of the United States as well. Because I've often noticed, like, I think it's most apparent with a French person, 
Some, a French person speaking French seems to be taking pleasure from the process of speaking French. There's like a sensuous... Without a doubt. They're proud of the language. And, and British as well. Like I, On some levels. Some levels. I mean, I there's can't. a working class thing, but like I noticed your accent right away. And I don't know what it is, but it's recognizable to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's an artistry to it. Whereas American English is just... It's business. It's get it done, move on to the next thing. There's, there is that. And it became lazy. Cary Grant was that last generation. There was this weird time of like a, I don't, it was an almost British upper class signifying, you know, that you saw in movies in the 50s. It was affected, absolutely. Right. It was affected, but it was, it was an attempt to, to distinguish oneself from the rabble. Right. Which I think is lost because America is proudly not class-based, you know? Well, yes and no. (laughs) It's class-based on money. But, you know, it's very funny you should say that because I spent 30 years, I spent more than 30 years in America. And about halfway through my career uh, in film, when I was traveling immensely, I mean, literally, it would be, you know, come to Beijing, build this, and then we need you in Prague, come and do that. And, and my life was that. You were doing production design? Production designer, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I've been blessed. I mean, my mentor was Harold Michelson, and I've uh, been blessed to have... Who worked with Hitchcock, who... Absolutely. You know, Harold? many, oh, many yeah. of these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, you know, many. I mean, Harold drew the famous shot of The Graduate looking through oh really he drew Ah. that long before they ever shot it Ah. Harold was responsible for that and a lot of other things he was a genius guy so he worked on that film as well oh yeah The Groundhog well he was in the studio system what a film he was in and you know I recently rewatched it after so many years and you know what today change the music and you've got yourself a fucking horror stalker movie Mm. just change the music yeah, and it's stalker movie and when was, he goes up to Berkeley and all of yeah. that and I was just like watching it through a modern mm. filter going my god this film today would never have had the effect of this sort of you know teenage love story mm. that it had when it was made which we remember but I digress um, we were talking about uh, Harold Hitchcock uh, right um, Traveling around the traveling world. around the world and language. And what I found was about halfway through my career, I've been in America, you know, spent all those years in New York, and then moved to LA. And I developed this transatlantic twang. My British accent kind of disappeared, and I had the English thought I sounded American, mm. Americans like. But what I found was when I traveled, nobody could understand me. I was having a very difficult time being understood. So I forced myself, it wasn't much of a force, but I forced myself to actually return to speaking clearly and properly. And the problem was solved. All of a sudden, I could communicate very easily with an Indian or a Thai. So they just didn't know which register. They they couldn't. They couldn't understand it. Yeah. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, what the fuck <laughs> And all of a sudden, they're looking at me with sort of glazed eyes, and I realized, okay, I, th- this is my problem, right. you know. And it took me a minute to notice it, but language is so funny, you know, uh, and, and essential. It's an essential part of being human. I mean, when you love somebody, for example, and you're inspired to write poetry or you're inspired to try and capture what you're feeling, you know, th- there are certain pieces of 
word combinations that bring tears to my eyes today when I see them. You know, how beautiful is this? You know, I mean, imagine rolling over with your lover that you have to leave and go, you know, night's candles are burnt out and jocund day stands tiptoe on the misty mountaintops. I mean, it's fucking romantic and beautiful, but who says that now? It's like, oh, honey, I go, go. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's tragedy. I find that to be on some level a little bit tragic because we're embracing mediocrity. You know? Which is a big theme of uh, the unbearable lightness of being. Yes. As I recall, the kitchification of the world. Indeed. So can we, not to, to bring this conversation down from the philosophical well, heights too much, go. I'm so but, but just to get a little biographical, I mean, you, I, you grew up in London, you said single parent, kind yeah. of rough. Then you mentioned New York, you're dealing on the streets, yeah. playing backgammon. Yeah, yeah. I, like what's, what's I that trajectory? In, I grew up in North London um, uh, with a single mother and obviously a foreign last name. And... I grew up in Finsbury Park initially, and it was hardcore back then. Is it when, Portuguese, or what is no, your name? No, my, my name is Spanish, actually. Oh, it's uh, yeah. Vico, and I'm mm. Vico. And it is an 11th century Sephardic name uh-huh. from down here. Hmm. Uh, so I grew up in, when I was eight years old, I was working on weekends, shucking cockles and winkles for the Craven. I mean, the craze were part of, my, you know, we all looked up to them in their mohair suits and whatever. I grew up in that neighborhood. And that's a, a gang? A the Cray Brothers? Mafia? About the craze. No. There are these twin brothers who were notoriously brutal. There's some amazing films out there, mm. actually, called The Craze is one of them. K-R-A-Y-S. Well, I grew up in that. Mm. And it was hardcore. It was really tough, really hardcore. And... Um, uh, brutal, actually. Uh, the British can be very brutal um, for all of their charm and whatever. There's a hardcore side to them, which is why the British have manners, by the way. Hmm. It's why manners are so important. To control that brutality? Yeah, they'd be, they'd be setting each other's throats hmm. all the time, you know, going out on a Friday night. Yeah. So I grew up in, in, in uh, uh, North London and then through some sort of twist... Um, of my mother's life, I was sent away at 10 years old into the British public school system, where I certainly didn't belong. as a street kid and all of a sudden got thrown into this, you know, very kind of elite schooling thing. And I didn't fit anywhere anymore. And so by the time I was, I don't know, I remember 16, I was gone. Like, as soon as I, I ran away a couple of times, mm. I got picked up by the police and then finally moved my ass to Paris and uh, fell in love in Paris and then found myself at 19 years old uh, in New York in 1982 with 100 books. So wait, you, you, so your mother uh, had a relationship with a wealthy man or something? Yeah, that's no, what... my, my, mother, I th- my mother is uh, right now, uh, we call it Italian nobility, if you will. You know, she's some... Just some title Florence. Everybody's marrying Italian princes in this neighborhood. You what's, know what's what I'm going saying? That's so funny. <laughs> well, it's you know, weird. Italian princes are a dime a dozen. I guess so. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. So, she, you, and what did you, you fell in love with a woman or you fell yeah. in love with Paris? Or no, what? no. Well, I, I moved to Paris because I had a friend there and, yeah. and I learned French and, and worked uh, in music, ironically. I worked in, at this area, but I was just a kid. I didn't have any kind of. 
And you're, what year are we talking about? It must be 1979. So you and I are roughly the same age. the same age, yeah. Which sucks because you look 20 years younger. (laughs) Motherfucker. Uh, Well, you know, it's because I didn't. Because you've had an easy life, that's why. I know. Yeah, that's it. Easy life. Let me tell you, being a single parent of twin girls was a journey. But so then I went to New York. And through a twist of fate, I fell in with this amazing group of people, which was, they were called the Leonard Street Gang, Kate McKamey, LSG. And it was where all of those artists, the famous ones of Basquiat and Keith, Keith Haring and so forth, everyone hung out there. Uh-huh. And the first, you know, this was the thing where Schnabel got it wrong. He said, oh, Samo was Basquiat's tag. It's not true. It's absolutely not true. Samo was the tag of LSG, which was this conglomerate of artists. That's why it was everywhere. It wasn't Mm, one person doing it. It was a lot of people doing it. And the first ever Samo is still written on the wall in the loft where the kitchen was. And it says, Samo for you. Mm. And it came out of, what's up with you? Yeah, Samo shit. Mm. And then someone got up and wrote Samo for you on the wall. And Samo then became what it became with the purple people feet and whatever. So I fell into that group of people and And this is late seventies? This is early eighties. Early eighties. Nineteen eighty two. I was in New York then. Yeah. It was rough then. New York yes, was rough. Was. That's I early AIDS days. It sure was. And it lots was magn- of violence. And it was magnificent. Yeah. It was rough, but it was magnificent. I mean I find New York it to was be quite real. Tame. Yeah. It was real. I mean Alphabet City. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean I remember the guy the white boy who went in to buy drugs and they found him three months later in garbage bags hanging between buildings. I mean, Alphabet City was hardcore. Yeah, I lived uh, one block south of Houston with Avenue A. Uh, oh, you were right there. I was there, you yeah. Right well, there. that was, well, by then, that was 86, 87. Right. Uh, but 85, I was up in Spanish Harlem, 106 oh, right. and Lex. That was, that was tough too. That, that was crazy. I mean, there were yeah. all these different things. Yeah. Yeah, so I was in Tribeca. And you were an artist then? Or no, no, I didn't even know art from art. I was, huh? I was actually uh, a recovering Englishman, <laughs> you know, recovering from that country. Yeah. Um, and I apprenticed myself with this amazing man, Steve Altman, uh, who recently I brought him out here. He hadn't traveled since 1973. Mm. And I brought him here with his wife and he came and had a wonderful, and I just wanted to thank him. Mm. I said, you know, and he said, I didn't do anything. I said, you know what, Steve, you did so much and you don't even know it, but what you did allowed me to have a life. And I I just want to be in gratitude for that and, you know, give honor where it's due. So, So I worked as a cabinet maker. And uh, I apprenticed as a, as a joiner, actually, very fine woodworking. And funnily enough, I built uh, Yoko Ono's kitchen in the Dakota. In the Dakota, wow. And I built Nixon's library on 72nd Street, which uh, was very interesting because this was a huge fucking place up on, on the Upper West Side. I mean, and so huge that I could skateboard through it. In New York back then, I skateboarded everywhere. And you could literally skateboard through it. And he spent all this money on this place. I mean, the library itself, I think, cost hundred and something thousand dollars. Now, you go back to 1983. That was a lot of freaking money yeah. back then. And, and so this magnificent, ornate woodworking. And then the building wouldn't let him move in. 
the building because of Watergate well because they just didn't want to have that responsibility in Mm. their building so they wouldn't let him move in so he spent all this money and who knows where it came from and uh, and then uh, by I'm tempted to say by accident but I don't believe in accidents but let's say by accident with Kate, who was an actress and a poet and a screenwriter and play, playwright and so forth, I ended up getting drawn into independent underground New York filmmaking. Mm. And I found my home. You ever work with Jim Jarmusch? Never worked with him. I would have loved to. Yeah. Uh, but I found my home. Huh. I, I was like, who are these people? You know, we're right. the modern carnies. And, right. and I loved it. And, and, and I didn't understand a thing. And then I heard about a film called uh, Tough Guys Don't Dance, which was Norman Mailer's first mm. movie, and ended up getting a job driving uh, Michael Kaplan, I think was his name, who was the costume designer for Blade Runner and even today still working amazingly. So a lovely man, an absolutely delightful human being. And I was his driver. And he really, in New York, he needed a driver. To, and he loved me because I was just this wild, you know, I had no, no, no breaks. And he loved it because I would get him from here to there and I'd just circle Bloomingdale's until he would come out. And then we'd go and he said, look, come on up to there. So I went up to Cape Cod and um, I sat on the doorstep of the production office. Carolyn Barron was the UPM at the time. And she came to work that morning and I said, hi, I'm Robert DeVico and I'm here for a job. She goes, I'm here for a job. What do you do? I said, look, I don't know what I do, but I'm not going away till you give me one. <laughs> you might as well give me one now. And they were like, who is this guy? Okay, well, uh-huh. come on in. And I started off on the photocopy machine, copying scripts. And back then it was, you know, one page at a time. Right. It was, oh my God, the most boring job I ever did in my life. And I worked for the, I heard... Uh, a guy called, I think his name was John Williams, who was the special effects guy. Armin Gans was the production designer, and Joel Silver was the producer. And they were having a big conversation, which was, we have no way of reproducing this Cape Cod woodworking that we need to do, whatever, whatever. And I'm on the, I, I'm on the photocopy machine, and I was, I was a kid, I was 22, I was, yeah. I was young, and you know, and cocky very cocky and uh, I walked I knocked on the door of Joel Silver's office which was open and it opened it and I, I I put my head in and they all looked up at the PA and they, yeah I said I hear you got a problem building stuff they went yes or what I said I can build anything you can think of and they went really I said yeah and so I started as a carpenter and built Norman Mailer's library in his Cape Cod house, funnily enough, as a set for the film, which was with Isabella Rossellini and mm. Ryan O'Neill. Mm. And, um, and then that was the beginning. And that was my first real film. And I just loved it. I loved the excitement of it. I loved the unpredictability of it. I loved the problem solving of it. I loved the characters because everybody is a freaking character oh, on one level or another, especially back then, because it was real film. Mm. It wasn't like it is today, digital. 
So we were working in it. And then I moved to LA uh, after that film. And I had, I think I had like 1,500 bucks and I lost it my second day in Los Angeles. How did you lose it? Gambling? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and like so I found myself. Were you playing poker or no, like in the street? It was some sort of pyramid scheme. I don't uh, know. And I got sucked in with a friend and whatever. Uh, I mean, but I ended up you know, in LA and then literally, quite literally pounded the pavement. And I started on Robertson Boulevard because I thought, my God, you know, I can build kitchens at least. So I went to the kitchen showrooms and uh, made some friends and then learned about the studios. And um, back then there was no security on the studios. You could just walk in. Hmm. It wasn't like today where you need a passport and a visa. Back then you could walk up to the gate and go stage seven. Okay. Carpenter, stage seven, no problem, in you go. And so I ended up walking around the studios and uh, seeing the guys building sets and got a job with uh, a company called PC Sets, which was Peter Schwalder and Chris Hyde. And then almost in no time, because back then it was so much work. I mean, LA was another city. So late 80s now? Now we're talking late 80s and everything had something to do with film. Yeah. So you might have been a musician or whatever you were, but you worked in, everybody made their money in film. On every corner there was a set shop, and every other corner there was a prop shop, and every other corner there was a costume shop, and mm. every other corner there was a specialty Christmas shop, a plateau. You know, the whole city was about film, and it, would, it was always packed with film. So I started off building sets and worked on some really huge stuff and uh, was taught how to built scenery by one of my dearest, most, and I have to say his name just to keep it alive on your podcast, Ted, Ted Demos, Theodore Demos, was one of the most magnificent human beings I've ever met. He's passed now, rest in peace. And we started building, you know, I started building, Ted, and we were building, and back then we built everything, you know, mm. commercials, floods, and all sorts of stuff. And then very soon, uh, was working for another amazing man who I'm great friends with still, Guy Greville Morris, and became an art director like overnight mm. and started doing music videos and then commercials and you know, designing commercials. And then got my first films with Roger Corman. Mm. And I did my Corman years, uh, which at the time we used to hide. We wouldn't put it on our resume. Really? We didn't tell anybody we were a Corman. It was a great, like, ooh, it means you're at the bottom of the ladder. Now, you know, when I was working, when I worked for Oliver for a while. And, and Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone, yeah. And one of the things that impressed him and got me the work was the fact that I had been at Conan. Hmm. That to him meant something. It meant that I could do something with nothing. And, and, you know, anyone who knew what that was about. But when you look at the alumni, of the Roger Corman School of Film, in parentheses, you know, it's incredible. Jack Nicholson. Hmm. Come back to that. Yeah, what was Five Easy Pieces? Was it Roger Corman? No, Little Shop of Horrors. Oh. oh. Right? But then the dentist. Uh, the dentist. He's in there. Uh, I never pieces. saw that. Little Shop of Horrors, I think, was, you know, and he did all of those. You know, Roger was a very interesting guy. And he could have been making toothbrushes. Mm. It didn't matter. But yeah. He happened to be making movies. Right. And my first movie, you know, I was terrified because you know, I came up through the ranks. And, 
very stressful, scary thing, it seemed at the time. And uh, Roger walked in and had built this beautiful set for a film called Carnosaur. And I'd made it out of just stuff. I mean, like, you know, styrofoam hamburger boxes and painted silver and stuff. And he came in and said, wow, this is one probably the best set we've had at Corman for, oh no, that was Dillinger and Component. He, no, that was Carnosaur, he said that. He, yeah, uh, one of the best sets we've had at Corman. He goes, do you need anything? So I go to Roger, well, you know, Roger, I could, Mr. Corman, I could use a little more money. He goes, well, if you had more money, anyone could do it. And yeah. walked out. <laughs> and, and I had to sign this contract. You know, my contract, because at the time, you know, what I wanted was the credit. Yeah. You know, that first movie is the toughest one to get. Mm. And in my contract was, if you go over budget, you don't get a credit. Ooh, okay. Tight chip. Tight chip. So yeah. it's kind of scary. Anyway, it was an amazing experience to you know, do the films I did there. And he shot 20 or 30 movies on my sets, which, which was funny because later on in life, you know, I'm sitting one day interviewing art directors or whatever, several years later when I was doing, you know, bigger films, nine and a half weeks. And so. I'm sitting with this guy who's interviewing for an art director and he comes in and shows me his portfolio and I open his portfolio and I've seen all my work. It's all mine. You know, it came out of my head. So I'm, I saw I'm sitting there going, that's an interesting set. How much did that cost you to build? He gives me a number. I was really in with the comfort. He tells me a story. And I'm like, that's wonderful. I said, do you know my work? He said, well, you know, I know your name, but I, I, looked, I said, can I show it to you? <laughs> so I, I happened to have my portfolio, because back then it was, oh, there were man. no DVD. You know, yeah. you had portfolios yeah. with photos. I go here and he opens it and all of a sudden the sets he's showing me are sitting, you know, are in my portfolio. And I, no, I didn't, I didn't get upset at all. I said, I understand you went through, you went through Corman, right? You're at Concord and you inherited this stuff. He goes, yeah. I said, well, you did a nice job. You kept it alive. Don't worry about it. I said, I know. But he's taking credit for creating it, right? Well, it's Hollywood, man. You know, everybody's... You know, everyone's lying through their teeth. It's Hollywood, man. What's that line, the last line of, uh, oh, it's, don't worry about it, it's Chinatown. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it, it's Chinatown. Yeah, fabulous film. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that, and I think being in film, the things that I really loved about that was that you never knew what was coming. Right. From one week to the next, I never knew where I was going to be. And, and I would say to my crews, you know, people, I'd hear someone complaining. I'm like, if you don't like problems, you need to get out of this business. Right. Because this is only one problem after another that we solve, you know, on the fly, all day long, month after year, you know. And if you don't like it, this is the wrong business. Yeah, that's nice. Yesterday we were taking a little hike with uh, Deborah and Jeremy, her neighbor. I don't know if you've met him, but he's a fabulous guy. Really interesting guy. I probably know him by sight. He just bought the place across the street from her, so he's the one that's being renovated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. is it? Okay. But oh, there was the, the actor. Yeah. 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 Okay, actor, actor yes. dancer. Yeah. Really, really nice super guy. Super nice guy. Yeah. So we were taking this hike, and Deborah's hat blew off and and flew into these bushes and. We got her hat, but there was this little brooch that was gone and it had like horse hairs and it, she really liked it. So we were all looking for it. And 
Finally, he found it and he held it up and he said, he had this beautiful, just pure joy. He said, I love looking for things and finding them. Yes. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> it's just like, ah, when you said, if you don't like problems, it's like, okay. But, but, but aren't we frame all it. doing that for love? I mean, you know, there are people who find their partners and they spend their lives together and they figure out how to do that. But those of, you know, us who sort of process through relationships and stuff, isn't that all we're ever doing? We just want to love Seeking and, be loved. and finding and, yeah. Just love and be loved at the yeah. end of the day. And then when you actually find it, you know, you were saying earlier how, you know, love is this thing and it's true. I mean, you know, you... Nothing changes in your life and all of a sudden you can go from being clinically depressed to being floating two inches above the ground because you fell in love with somebody. I mean, you know, how is that? Yeah. Or, or, or also love for what you do, which is another yeah. kind of love. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, here we are with, you know, Western music and rock and roll and we talk about love you know, and how important love is and so forth. But you know, in Arabic, there are like, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'm close to being right. There are like 28 <laughs> different words. That's going to be the name of this podcast. <laughs> forgive me, me for, for, but I'm close to being right. <laughs> right. But there are like 28 words uh, for love. Uh, yeah. And very specifically, right. there's the love of a sister. There's the love mm -hmm. of a mother. There's the love of God. There's the love of intimate love there's a love of your wife but like like the same way Eskimos have like 28 words for snot right. or however many they have right. within the realm of of, of uh, the Arabic language it's the same for love and so I wonder you know because I adore Rumi and I love Hafiz and, and, and Conference of the Birds you know Fadid Benatar um, and I wonder how much I'm losing mm. in the translation when, you know, he says, you know, I, I am drunk with love for my... But, you know, we've lost the... the what would it be? The, 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 the specific nature mm. of that because of a word mm -hmm. where we have one word, you know, and that one word, you know, can cover... Uh, going to the Ukraine to help refugees or, you know, having anal sex with somebody. I mean, you know, it's like, the, the, it's just, that's one word for it. Yeah. And it doesn't... Yeah. You, you well, and, you know, the re there is research that shows that people uh, are better at distinguishing colors if their language contains specific words for the gradations. So I'm looking at your painting right now and, you know, there are... 15 different shades between yellow and red of Correct. different, you know, amber mm -hmm. and, and burnt orange and all this. Mm -hmm. And if there's a word for it, you see it. Correct. So it's so not if just, you would say, oh, the orange is apricot. Right. Then you would specifically You can see it. So what your point is not just a semantic point. No. It's the, the experience of those different types of love is actually more accessible to someone whose language contains the word for it. Exactly, and it brings us back to human control and the control of humanity through fear and misdirection, which is what we are engulfed in right now. Yeah. Because by removing that... It's funny, it's where our conversation started. By removing that uh, specific control over language, all of a sudden 
you know, you're bludgeoning everything because you don't have what it, you know, you don't have the training or the wherewithal to express yourself properly. And I wonder if on some level that inability to express could be the reason for this, uh, can I call it endemic depression that exists in the Western world right now? Because I'm feeling this thing that I don't know how to, I don't know how to put that on the table in front of you. So I'm going to pay this stranger a small fortune to go and sit with them for years at a time, Mm. hopefully to find a way to actually define what this thing is inside of me that I can't identify, you know? And uh, for me, education is the key and to, to, on some level, happiness. Uh, but, you know, there are very highly educated people who are not happy and there are yeah. very poorly educated people who live in joyous bliss, Yeah. you know. So I don't know if that theory really washes right the way through. But one thing that I, I, I have seen is that when you are fortunate enough to have an education. And I'm not talking about going to Harvard or a good school. I'm talking about the fact that you've chosen to, as I did, I'm an autodidact. You know, I've taught myself five languages. I've taught myself woodworking and film and design. It's that that has allowed me to actually survive the last eight years of my life. Mm that allowed me to have a perspective on that, where being a single parent of twin girls, being homeless, being broke, being on the street. This has all happened in the last 10 years? Oh yeah, this happened. When I arrived here in this village, I arrived with 50 euros and two children, and I was homeless. Mm. You know, I mean, I had that attack. I was attacked in America, seriously injured, and, in LA, yeah. Oh, that's you mentioned someone pointing a gun at you. Is no, that nothing you're... to do. That's another. That's another. Story. No, that's somewhere else. So, but no, in LA, it was uh, it changed my life. One hundred everything about my life. Um, I was I lived up at the time. I had a wonderful place up in uh, under the Hollywood sign, and we um, and it was a community center, if you will. In as much as we jammed every Wednesday night mm. for fifteen years, and everybody from Everybody came, you know. And I was going home one afternoon from the YMCA with my daughters, and some guy, big guy, six foot six guy, juicing, was driving down the hill uh, like a madman. And as you know, it's all hairpin turns on the way up there. So I'm at a hairpin turn. This guy's coming down the hill like, like insane. And I'm sitting in the car with three girls. And so I just stopped. My girls were about six years old. I don't know where he's going to go. And he comes screeching to a halt next to me. And I'm like, hey, man, I thought he was a tourist, actually. Hey, buddy, you know, chill out, will you? Don't drive like that up here. i got children in the car. He's like, fuck you, you fucking fuck, fuck. I'm like, dude, I got, it's three o'clock in the afternoon, perfect hmm. California, perfect day. Yeah. I'm like, dude, you, what's wrong with you? I've got little girls here. You don't need to speak, fuck you, you'll go I said come man you're not getting out of the car for this just chill motherfucker got out of the car 
and I can handle myself, but I just didn't see it coming. I mean, you don't, with yeah. children, you just don't, didn't see it coming. I got dragged out of my car. He grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and started smashing my head into the edge of the car door. What the fuck? What the fuck? And the guy saw it. My girls were screaming blue murder. All the neighbors started coming out. And then finally someone shouted at him and he dropped me and started kicking me. At which point when he turned around, that's when I jumped up. You know, I came up in Facebook, but I came up yeah. hard. I know yeah. how to handle myself. That's when I got up and got it. And my girl was my beautiful Kaitanya. Oh my God, she was in a tight Kwondo outfit. And she, she's only little like this and she cries. And she's trying to do Taekwondo on this big guy. And I'm like, get back in the, get back in the gun. And, and so as I'm doing that, I grab my phone to call the police. Motherfucker cold cocks me again. I took all these head injuries. And I ended up getting a dislocated jaw, dislocated shoulder, dislocated ribs me whatever and then he drove off and uh and oh, he told me, i went blind for you and so you know you, you can imagine how much work there is for a blind designer holy fuck. and so my life fell apart you know how it is in america one one crack yeah and it all there's no gets, safety there's net. no safety net so all of a sudden i'm looking at losing my home i'm looking at everything i've built just being and then my relationship which was difficult anyway at the time completely fell apart and uh i found myself being a single dad and being really injured you know seriously injured it took seven years he's head injury you know and um and so i you know and but look i i must tell you something i i can look at that and have some emotions about it but in actuality i have deep gratitude for what happened and horrific as it was and it was and it was very serious but I have immense gratitude for what happened because it actually woke me up and it woke me up to what was important mm. and it woke me up to the life I live now right which is you know and it was a struggle to get here with little girls and and, and coming to this village was very funny because I came to see Deborah, obviously, a friend here. And, and I was really kind of injured. And um, I realized this was a place that I could probably heal. Mm. And so I took a, you know, a funny story. I don't know if you want this story, but it's like, you know, I had no money. I was completely broke. It's so funny. I was picturing you some rich Hollywood dude comes here with a million euros. No, no, no. That's not what happened. I came here with 50 bucks. So much more interesting. I came here with 50 bucks and we were walking down. I said, Stebra, I think, Deb, I think I'm going to stay here. I like the weather and whatever. I came for three days. Yeah. So I said, let's find a place. I'm going to stay with Deborah, even though we're old, old friends. And we're walking down one bueno here to that big mansion right by Central. And she goes, oh, look, there's Margarita, who's an agent. We go over and talk to her. She's opening this mansion. She's opening this, this, this you know, uh-huh. Castillo almost. Hello, hello, how are you doing? Blah, 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 blah. My friend is interested in play- Oh, you're interested in the place. I said, yeah, how long do you want it for? I said, what, what, what do you mean? Like a year, I suppose. She goes, you want it for the whole year? I said, sure. So she goes, great. 
So we look at the place and it's spectacular inside. I mean, it was like five meter ceilings with a hammam underground and whatever. So she hands me a contract, you know, I'm a street kid, like, you know, yeah. I'm a survivor. I you know, grew up. So she hands me a contract and part of the injury actually, this is my great regret about the thing. I had, my secret weapon was I had something akin to a photographic memory. Mm. And I wouldn't call it total recall because I know people who do have that and I didn't have that, but I could read a script once and I had it, you mm. know, or whatever, you know, my library, you know, these are my mistresses. And after the injury, I would read a page and have no idea what I just read. Mm. Not a clue. Not even, I couldn't even. And then this other thing began to happen, which was I would be looking at that and I could not see the glass. It was right in front of me. I couldn't name it. It was kind of like mm. this dyslexia. I don't know what. Right. It's like this right. thing. It's that, but I couldn't. And it's back to what we were just talking about, you know, the love, having mm. the right word to mm. describe a thing. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's this very strange condition where you're looking right at something, but you can't see it. Yeah. You can't identify it and you can't see it. And it's terribly frustrating. Mm. So anyway, we're getting, we're going to the house and she goes, I said, do you have a contract? She goes, yes. She pulls out the contract, eight page contract. And I sit. I'd like to thank the Academy for pretending to read Spanish and I pretend to read the whole contract and I go, well, that that seems fine to me. Uh, do you have a pen? So she hands me, and she's like, for her, she's just made close the deal. You right. know? So she hands me the pen and I'm just about to sign it and I go, you know, I got a little, it might be a problem. She goes, what's that? I said, well, all my money is in America right now and I've never had to transfer this amount of money uh, and it could take me three days or three weeks. I really don't know, you know, what it's going to take because American banking system is so bizarre. She went, don't worry about it. Pfft, signed. And we moved in that night. And like I said, I had 50 bucks. And so we move into this amazing place, you know, anyone's dream. It was outside. It's sort of what it is. And inside was like the tits New York loft. I mean, it was really something. And so I'm sitting there with my, my beautiful daughters and, uh, and we'd just been, you know, I'd just taken, we'd just come from Venice, Italy, and I'd taken them to Athens and Naples and Rome and Paris and Lisbon and Geneva. And I'd taken them all over. We were looking for, mm. I don't know what we were looking for. I was mm. just moving, mm -hmm. you know, trying to keep it moving. And, um, and also, sheltering them from the condition we were in which mm. was you know and so here we are and my girls were 10 years old and uh, I said to them alright ladies we don't have anything we need olive oil and we make a list I go what do we need we need cookies oh, we need some cookies oh, we need some butter we need some butter and some bread and an onion and a garlic and a tomato and we make a list and so I give our last 50 to them and give them the list and I go, go get it. And my daughter, Kai, who you met the other day, she goes, dad, we don't speak a word of Spanish. I said, do you want to eat? They went, yeah. I said, a la calle. 
on the street. <laughs> and they came back about two hours later. <laughs> and it was Paco Malero, the butcher, who mm. taught them how to count. Because uh, he was like, how many sausages do right. you want? And mm. they were like, uno, dos, tres. <laughs> and everybody got to see these just golden California girls, which is what they were. Mm. We'll pause for a moment. So to wrap this story up, they came back and then I began to slowly build a life here, you know, and then scrambling over the years, got my stuff together and bought this place, the casino. And then mm. last year I just bought a place down on the beach. The place on the beach. And now you're riding your horse on an empty beach. Every day. Swimming in the water with him. Yeah. That's every day. Awesome. And and I think that, you know, I, you know I, I'm not sure who you reach or, but if I can impart anything to your audience, it will be never complain, never mm. give up. Mm. Because putting one foot in front of the other is an act of faith. And, we're, and, and, and in my particular case, it was an act of love because I, I loved my daughters so much that mm. I couldn't, you know, and there were times where I didn't know how I was going to go forward. I was in, you know, 72-hour headaches that were like a bar being pushed through my head. You know, when we found out what was wrong, we fixed it, had a dislocated uh, vertebrae mm. that nobody caught. Mm. That's what was causing it. And, you know, our journey is our journey and everything is a gift. It just depends how you choose to look at it. Mm. And, and you can turn, you know, anything. It's up to us whether what happens to us is a vessel of detriment or a vessel of enlightenment. And that's our personal choice, mm -hmm. I believe. And I think that, you know, one of the great diseases of today is blame. And we see this. We see this very clearly in American politics. We see it in, you know, who can we blame for this? Let's blame Harvey Weinstein for this endemic problem. Let's blame whoever for... Where the truth is, when it comes down to a personal level and certainly intrapersonal between you and your lover, wife, partner, whoever it might be, Blame is admission that you are not doing the work. Hmm. Because our job is to do the work. And, and when, when we are hit by adversity, it's actually a great gift if you look at it in the correct way. And I think that um, you see that you've traveled immensely, obviously through India and so forth. And you go to, let's say, the city of joy you can go to Beverly Hills and you see this person who's driving around, you know, a $200,000 car in a mansion with 15 television and everything you want, and they look miserable and then they kill themselves. Or you go to the city of joy, you know, the, the, the great slum of Calcutta, you won't see more smiling faces anywhere. Mm. So how do you, you know, how does one reconcile that? And, and when you realize, I think that we are all uh, victims of this sort of material seduction that we spoke of earlier. And we come to believe that, you know, I'm going to be happy if I have the right mm. thing. And I'm going to be happy if I get the right shoes and people look at me in a certain way. And I'm going to... 
where I have to say within the realm of my life, possibly the happiest I ever was, and lovers apart and all of that, because that's a whole other category. I'm just talking about general well-being. And even in the condition I was in, was when I was traveling with my daughters and we had literally one small bag between us, between the three of us. And we lived down here with nothing. We had to wash our clothes daily because we only had one change of clothing, <laughs> you know. And I'm, I, I would say that, you know, therein lies sort of the, therein lies the rub. Because you'd reduce the material to the There point. was no material. Yeah. To distract me. From All the there was was love. Right. All there was was my role as a man to protect these girls. And, and probably the toughest thing of the healing was that, you know, here's this guy, me, who grew up pretty hard and I've seen some pretty interesting stuff in my life, you know, and some of it unpleasant. And I couldn't defend my daughters. And that, oh my crushed me mm. that was that was the, like I just had the shit beaten out of me I took a man's beating in front of my daughter I couldn't defend my daughters I failed it was a sense of but failure you, you but know? you did defend them you sacrificed yourself he didn't hurt them right I mean no, you, thank god I mean I'm very yeah. proud to see where you met yeah you know you saw what yeah. she is they're incredible awesome. creatures yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and uh, did they ever find the guy? Yeah, they caught him. I could give his name, but I don't. He's going to have to deal with his own karma. I won't give his name. But he was yeah. actually a location scout for film. Juicing. He was fucking uh, juicing. So it was a roid rage. Yeah. And yeah. he lost his shit, you know. Yeah. Um, but know, like I said, I'm in gratitude for that. And it took me a little yeah, while to I'm come bad. to that place. But, but you know, now. I have friends who are powerful directors and powerful producers who are functioning and working in the business and almost to a man and woman, by the way, they tell me, Rob, you did the right thing. Look at, look at your life now. Yeah. And we're still in LA and we, <laughs> we don't know how to get out. We can't get out. You got pushed out in a way, right? I mean, that Well, I, I could have stayed. I could have stayed and continued, but... You know what it was, and I think we all have this experience on some level, is like the world has messages for us. Mm. Sometimes they're clouded and we have to decipher them, and sometimes they're very specific and very pointed. Well, when I look in retrospect to what happened, I had been getting the signs for years. Uh, it's time to leave. you got to get out. It's there's a new life way. And it just gets stronger and every time. And it just got stronger and it just got harder. And, and, you know, part of it, a big part of the story, I didn't tell you if you're interested, is yeah. that there is a myth in America right now, if you remember 2008 and everything that went on with the big short and all of that business. There was this thing which was you can have your property signed over to you if you can prove they don't have the documentation. Uh, well, it was an urban myth on some level. Huh. Well, I did it. I fought three major banks in pro persona as my own legal team and beat them. 
because they had sold your mortgage and well, didn't no, have what the paper. had happened was 2000 yes yes they had done the, the that whole selling the mortgage and selling the mortgage right. and selling the mortgage and selling the mortgage and they'd lost the paperwork and so that's where you got and, the money to, to set happened, up here <laughs> so what happened was what happened was i was in an eight-year legal battle nearly killed me it was terrible and I, brian barry shout out to one of the most magnificent human beings and one of America's super lawyers who was sort of whispering in my ear mm. from behind. But, um, you know, I, I fought them and I taught myself law. Fortunately, I had this, you know, acumen where I could do that. So I taught myself law and I was showing up to court and fighting these guys. And this then, before the attack? Oh, yeah. Uh. And then the judge, what happened was the judge said, you, okay, that we have no... He awarded me my home, and they were they were ordered to uh, uh, return my home because they had no paperwork, no signatures, no nothing. It was all lost. They had no trail of anything, and that was when the banks got serious. Mm. At that point, they came back at me, and and the fight was on, and it went on for years. I mean, I actually a few days ago, cleaning out, I found my box, and so I actually that happened. I had my you know, uh, my title reconveyed, I believe is what it's called. Mm. And, um, and that urban myth is very real. And there was a moment where I was writing a book called Banksters before it became a word that everyone uses. I called them the Banksters. I was saying I'm fighting Banksters, you know. And I was writing this book called Banksters, which was a personal guide to defending yourself against the banks because so many homeowners, so many people lost their homes. It was terrible. I mean, one of my neighbors was this beautiful elderly couple. They'd been in the house for 40 years and some young fucking Turks because they couldn't make the mortgage because they took one of those prime line blah, 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 bought the house for a fraction of what it was worth at auction. And then a year later sold it for 1.2 million. Meanwhile, the people who'd looked after the house for 40 years were homeless and this elderly couple. And I felt really bad for everybody. So I was hoping to write this book and uh, I began it. I got like 70,000 words in, but it was just depressing me. And with my injury, it became impossible because I was reliving this mm -hmm. really traumatic experience, right. you know. Uh, so... That was when, you know, I came and decided, you know, life is for living. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the truth of the matter is that, you know, film was my passion. And it had been for 30 years. I love it. I love making them. But I knew I could not be a single father and a production designer and do both jobs well. I would do both jobs badly. Mm -hmm. So I chose to turn my back on my great passion. Here was the test. You know, we're faced with tests. It's like, what do you love more? Well, there was no, no competition. Mm. I, you know, I love that, but these, yeah. these creatures are my... <laughs> and so I walked away from film and it was terrifying. I had no income stream. I was like, what am I doing? Injured and so forth. And yet, out of those ashes is the life I live now. So I can only have gratitude for all of that, right? you know, in, right. in, in retrospect. And, 
And whenever I meet people who are in some sort of duress or, or you know, life is coming on a bit too strong or whatever, I always try to give them a shot in the arm and say, you know what, step up to the plate. Put the dukes up. Just, just one step, one more yeah. step will lead to the next, which will lead to the next. And But sometimes, you know, things happen that you don't, you don't recover from. I mean... Here, I'm not going to mention names in the recording, but recently there was a young suicide. And my very, very best, a young, very famous suicide, it was all over. And my very, very best friend was the father. Oh my God. His hair went bleached white. Mm. He lost his brother. Mm. It was terrible. Yeah. 27 years old. It was so you know there are some things and but I believe that these things that happen to us happen for a reason. You know karma is an equal opportunity provider. It doesn't you know discriminate yeah. between anyone and I think we're here for lesson. I love uh, one thing I think I'll always remember from this conversation is your idea that on some level, everyone has stepped up to that ledge and cut off their wings and taken the plunge voluntarily because that that frames things in a way that we all, everyone who's here, if on some level we all chose to take that plunge, there's there's something courageous in everyone, no matter how wrong it goes, no matter how twisted things get, everyone started with this intention of courage and I'm going to go for it. Well, you know, we are doing the one thing that God can't do. Mm. Live without God. Mm. That's an interesting idea. Because here we are. Our job is to discover the divinity within ourselves. It's a very hard job. And those, should we call them light thieves? I, I wrote a script to do with light thieves, right? It was, and and this black, dark entity matter that arrives at planet Earth at this moment of transition. And they're here to harvest the light of Gaia's awakening and her inhabitants. And there are light thieves among us. We've met them, we've dealt with them, we know these who these vampires are. Some of them are very, very powerful, some of them control countries, some of them just control sweet shops. You know, there isn't there's no sliding scale for whether you are or not. Um, but we do, I believe we do the most courageous thing that exists in all creation which is to find our true nature and I think each one of us is the, the hermeneticists would call it the all so rather you know, not to upset anybody in their religions it's experiencing itself in its infinite ways of experiencing itself and that's who we are it's mm. who you are. It's who I am. Nobody is exempt from this. 
And I think that there's this urge right now. And, and, and there's this urge more than ever to understand the truth. There's something calling everybody in their own way. And, and I, I can say this because a conversation that I started on, uh, or that was started by a friend of mine, James Kaler, on Facebook between him and me, which was, we, we have a site called The Ancient Order of the Hermetics. And we began this hermetic conversation for no other reason than just, it was a caprice. We have 400,000 members now, which I can't believe. I mean, I'm shocked by this because it's such an esoteric, <laughs> you know, it's such a strange, you know, area of interest. But what it tells me, and, and you know, the spectrum is really amazing. I mean, we have it from people who have never read a book to, you know, incredible uh, uh, academics who are with us. And there's a calling happening right now. Mm. And I believe that there isn't one path to this place, but there is only one path for each individual. Because your experience, you are the protagonist in this movie that you're living. And the moment you can't think, taste, touch, smell, hear, none of this exists. Mm. It's the paradox. Yeah. And and within 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 the hermetic frame, there's this thing called the divine paradox, which is a lovely concept. And the divine paradox is this that this is all illusion. But when you're in it, you've got to treat it like it's real. Like a dream. There you go. And 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 Alan Watts spoke of this often. What if you could have a 75-year dream? and be anything you want <laughs> and then wake up from it and then have another one the next day yeah. but I feel that our lives are far more important than we even begin to understand and nobody's exempt there isn't one human being alive on this planet that is invalid and and after having gone to like Ethiopia and Sudan, I was, I was doing a Beyond Borders with Oliver and we went to the refugee camps and I was so moved by the depth of the suffering and it really was a conflict. Like, you know, how could a good God allow for this? And I came to the conclusion that we are at this magnificent time of human evolution. Attached to Gaia herself, she also is evolving at the same time. Her consciousness is about to shift, much like a child turns into a teenager or a teenager turns into an adult. And we are intrinsically attached to her movement. So, if you will, here you are, a, 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 an entity, a conscious entity in your other dimensional form. And you're looking down at this beautiful blue planet going, oh my God, the great work is about to happen there. It's happening. I've got to be there. I have to be there. I can't miss this. Well, the creation is good and generous and says, okay, but 
this is where you are at evolutionarily and this is what you must learn at this particular manifestation in your life. So not to, you know, diminish the suffering that's out there. Not to, and there's a lot of it and some of it's horrific, you know. Um, but it is all part of the learning. And, you know, you wonder why, you know, why is it that Robert DeVico is now living in this life here, in this what seems to be idyllic and perfect one? Or you, for that matter, or Deborah, or the people we know that lead interesting, good lives that seem to be violence-free and so forth. It's because we have done that work before. We have been doing it. And that hit on the head that I took, or the many hits on the head that I took, about 15 of them, was probably because I went around on top of a horse bashing people on the head in another lifetime. <laughs> and I needed to, you know, I needed to reconcile that, what that really meant. Mm. And so, I mean, you know, it's a funny thought, but yeah. yeah. Robert, thank you. It's a great pleasure. It's this is wonderful. To my favorite kind of podcast where I just feel like I'm hanging out with a really interesting person and I just happen to record it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if there weren't a microphone, I think the we conversation would be having the same. Would have been In the fact, same. our conversation would probably be would continue for the next while because exactly. we've just cracked the ice yeah. of what's important. And let's do and it. I haven't really come to understand who you are. I mean, I've exposed myself because you asked me to, but it's your cheek. Yeah. Next time I'll expose myself. <laughs> yeah, promises, promises. Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much. Told you that was fun. Anyway, that's Robert DeVico, D-E-V as in Victor, I-C-O. And uh, yeah, his website is just, uh, let me, Robert DeVico. Yeah.com. RobertDeVico.com. There you go. Production designer. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is uh, a blast. This has been fun. Greetings to you from, where am I? Nigueles? Nigueles? I'm not sure exactly how to say it. It's uh, about half an hour from Granada, Spain. It's a really beautiful area here. And um, yeah, I love it. Really good olive oil. Best olive oil I've ever had. All right, take it easy. I'll be back with you soon. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone ask for much a little music and a soft touch 
to the ground. 